All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Emmanuel Fellowship Church. I love saying that. What a milestone day this is. A day where the wonderful God honoring histories of two churches by the grace of God converge today to be one. All for the glory of our Savior, our Lord and King. Our God is doing new things in our midst and we get the exciting opportunity to be part of what He's doing in our church and in the world. It's exciting stuff. I'll be in the first sermon of our new church. It's actually the fourth and final message in a series that Sam and I have been sharing in, a series whose intention was to elevate the person and work of Jesus Christ. How fitting that this morning we're finishing up talking about unity in the church. So right now, I want you to look to the people in front of you. I want you to look to the people behind you. Now I want you to look to the left. And finally, I want you to look to the right. Now, I know that you're seeing some strange people. A ragtag bunch of strange-looking people, but the reality is this is your new family. I want you to get excited about meeting and hanging with new family members. You know, it's like being a parent. Not only do you get one new child, but you get 50, 60, or 70 new child children in the family all at the same time. Listen, I know that without Christ as our common bond, many of us would never meet together every week or choose to open up and be real with each other in our small groups or go out to lunch together after church and enjoy each other's company. Our looks, our socioeconomic status, our age, our upbringing, our politics, our likes, our dislikes, our personal taste, our hobbies, our interests, our talents, they all can be so different. I mean, who in their right mind would choose to hang out with Matt after he, he loves Tom Brady? How can I ever live in unity with someone who loves Tom Brady? But honestly, Matt's a brother in Christ that I'm really looking forward to getting to know better because the differences in regard to unity, they're meaningless and yet destructive when you choose to make your unity based on anything else but the common bond that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a glorious day this is because you're at the center of it all. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. We say what an honor and privilege it is to serve the living God, to know that you're in our midst, to know that this whole thing, the church is your idea, and that Jesus, you are the head, and you're doing something wonderful and something new through your people, and we rejoice in that. You get the praise, you get the glory, and Lord, we're just your instruments in your hand, and we say use us however you will to exalt the name of Jesus in a world that needs you so desperately. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Title of this morning's message is Jesus Prays for Unity. And when you stop and think about the prayers of Jesus, more than likely your mind is going to go to the Lord's Prayer. The most well-known and recited prayer over the centuries in many Christian churches. But if you remember, it wasn't actually a prayer of Jesus. The disciples had seen Jesus often pull away to be alone in prayer with the Father so much that they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. They didn't ask Jesus what to pray, but asked him how to pray. So Jesus gives them a model, a suggested pattern for their future prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's saying this is the model uh, for prayer, to, to begin focusing on the Father in praise and worship and, and start from the beginning trying to focus on His will rather than your own. Then you move into personal petition and intercession for others. You confess your sins and seek to forgive those who have hurt you. And then you end by praying for help in spiritual warfare, for protection against your enemy, the devil. There are other times found in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life where we can actually hear the words of Jesus' prayers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, Father, if there be any way, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And while hanging on the cross, he, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But in John 17, which is our main text this morning, we have the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. The entire chapter John devotes to Jesus' prayer. Much of what Jesus prays for in this prayer is unity. In John 17, 11, he says, Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then verse 21, he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And then in verse 23, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Four times in this prayer, he's praying, asking the Father that his church would be in unity. This is less than 24 hours away from the cross before leaving with his disciples for the Garden of Gethsemane where while he was praying, Judas shows up with a, with a mob and he betrays him and Jesus is arrested and taken away. Just prior to this happening, Jesus has this intimate time of prayer with the Father and he cries out to him over and over again, Father, that his church would be unified. Jesus' prayer in John 17, it's divided in our Bibles into three sections and the first section is Jesus prays for himself. The second is that Jesus prays for his disciples, the 11 who remained with him. And then finally, in the final section, he prays for all believers. And through this text, we want to glean four main points in regards to unity. That the starting place for our unity is our salvation. The second main point is that the foundation for our unity is truth. The third is that the power and effectiveness in our mission comes through our unity. And finally this morning, the fourth point is that the preservation of our unity is found in our love for one another. So let's start at point number one. The starting place for our unity is our salvation. And I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to John 17. And we're going to read the first five verses. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may, be glorifi may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So there's a verse here that I really want to focus in on, and it's the third verse where he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that word know, it, it, it jumps out because it's in the Greek, a similar word is in the Hebrew, yada, which means to know. In Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And in the NIV, it says, Adam laid with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And what we see here that the meaning of this word to know, it means life-giving intimacy, an intimacy that brings forth new life. So through our faith in Christ as Savior, we're born again and we have new life. Salvation gives us a new relationship with God in Christ, where our lifelong pursuit is to know and love Him more. Do you want to know Him more? So you get into His Word. Take a closer look at Jesus in the Gospels, for he is the exact representation of God in human form. Then act on his revealed word, for he wants you to get to know him through experiencing him in everyday life as he walks with you each day. This is the starting place for our unity as a church, that our highest ambition is to know Christ and to love Christ, to pursue him in a deeper relationship. There's no possibility of unity apart from the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. In Christ, Christian, we, we have so many things that, that are in common. A common Savior, Lord and King. A common faith. A common baptism. A common spirit. A common identity as God's beloved child. A common spiritual family. A common eternal home. A common purpose and mission in life. And we base our unity on what we have in common. And that's quite a lot. Paul writes of this common bond we have in Christ in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, when he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. You see, it's not our differences that we're trying to find and achieve unity, but in the common things we possess through our salvation in Christ. Let's move on to the second point, where the foundation for our unity is truth. How do we determine the standard we're to use to base our unity upon? Well, let's go ahead and read the next verses in John 17. Let's, let's actually read verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So once again in this prayer of Jesus, I want to focus in on one verse, 17, which he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that word sanctify means to make holy, to make you more like Christ in character. It means to be set apart for the work of God. And in John 14, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, the one who would lead and guide us in truth. So the work of sanctification that he's talking about here, it's done by the Spirit through the Word. As we apply God's Word and through the Spirit, we live out its precepts and principles. 
God's word, the Bible, determines the basis for our unity. A unity found in truth, it's not based on feelings and emotions. Our cognitive reasoning, our history or tradition is not based on personal preferences in our likes and dislikes, nor in our political views. Truth is determined by divine revelation. And to simply define that word truth, it means an absolute standard by which reality is measured. Pastor Tony Evans says, God has spoken and he has not stuttered. There are two answers to every question, God's answer and everyone else's. And when they disagree with him, everyone else is wrong. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true and everyone else a liar. Concerning any division or dispute, we must ask, what does God's word say on the subject and what action does he want us to take? This is where I believe I must talk about politics. And I rarely do this from up front. Politics has become a huge reason for so much division in the church today in America. I can't find Jesus saying much at all about politics in the four Gospels. I don't hear him denouncing the emperor or the tyrannical Roman government of his day. I do believe the Christian should care about this country's government, should vote and be an educated voter. If a Christian senses God's call to invest their lives in politics with the hopes of being an ambassador for Christ, more power to you, for you are jumping right in the midst of the lion's den. I cast a vote in every election. And I am unapologetically pro-life. Because I believe God's word indicates that life begins at conception, that life in the womb is precious and sacred and thus must be protected. I believe in abortion ends a baby's life. But I also believe, rather than judge and condemn the women of Christ's pregnancy, that the church should support and love and assist that mother in any way possible, not only through her pregnancy, but beyond that. One of my dearest friends in the whole world is the executive director of Options for Women whose ministry is to do just that. And I'd love to see us as a church support that work in the future. But saying that I'm pro-life does not mean that I can put my head in the sand concerning other cultural issues of our day that the Bible speaks clearly about, such as immigration and racial reconciliation and caring for the planet. These three issues are dividing the church on political lines, not biblical truth. And I see them dividing Christian families. I see them dividing Christian parents and kids. I see them dividing generations, the old from the young, and it breaks my heart to see that. And oh, how it must break the heart of God. Our beliefs and actions as Christians in regard to these issues and others, they're not based on what the Republican Party says or the Democratic Party Not on what the pundits on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC say. Not on what the person on your favorite podcast says or your peers say online. We are to be the people of God's Word. Amen. It matters what God's Word says about it. You see, what the Word of God says, what Jesus says, is that the Christian lives in another kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world. Lives for another king, not the leaders of this country. We are to live by truth, the precepts and principles of that kingdom, to live by God's word and not man's opinions. Our king has outlined how we are to live as ambassadors in this world, representing our king. Our unity is to be based on the truth of God's word. So today I want to focus on just one of these cultural issues that is dividing the church today. 
to determine what God's word says about it and the issue is immigration. And you know, the irony of it all is that the Bible calls Christians aliens and strangers and foreigners in a land that's not their home. So that being said, how do you want to be treated as an immigrant in your land? Your kingdom identity as ambassadors of Christ, it supersedes and takes precedent and priority over all other identities. Your gender, race, family, national identity, and your political affiliation because you represent the king. What does the king have to say on how his people are to treat the immigrant? Zechariah 7, 9, and 10 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor in your hearts. Do not think evil of each other. And then Matthew 25, 34 through 36, it says, Then the king will say to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then they asked the king, when did we do these things for you? And in verse 40, the king replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This is the heart of the king in the kingdom that we are to serve. Listen, I believe, according to Romans 13.4, that the primary role of the government is to provide protection and safety for its own citizens through upholding law and order and punishing those who break the law. So because of what the Scriptures say, I believe in secure borders. But since that isn't what the government is doing, I believe as Christians that we are truly missing a wonderful move of God that has one characteristic about it that is similar to the way He started His first church. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 because I want to show you something. So, to just give you a little background, it's Pentecost and people from around the world are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. Pentecost was a prominent holiday and the Jewish calendar still is and it's called... Shuot, meaning weeks. It's called the Feast of Weeks. In Greek, it means 50, and it occurred 50 days after Passover. It was a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and later it was associated with remembering when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So at this time, the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the 120 disciples who gather together after the resurrection ascension of Christ. And they all began to speak in unknown languages, the actual languages of the people who had gathered into Jerusalem from all over the world. And in Acts chapter 2, let's read verses 5 through 12. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? 
People gathered from all over the world are bewildered by what's happening. And Peter stands up and he preaches a powerful gospel message and he explains to them that what you're seeing is actually the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Then he explained God's redemptive plan as witnessed in the life and the ministry and the teaching, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 2.21 he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's see what happens in verses 40 and 41. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. If you didn't realize it when you looked at that passage before, the first church began with a people of all kinds, multiple ethnicities, many different nations, speaking many different languages. It was a move of God that brought people from throughout the world to this one place that they might believe in Christ and have eternal life. Back in the early 90s, I remember a ministry named International Student Ministry. It was a ministry that focused on foreign exchange students coming to America so that they would reach out to them on the college campuses and befriend them and they'd see how they might meet their needs and connect them with a Christian family who, if needed, would take them into their home. They'd love on them and care for them and eventually share Christ with them. And I remember what they would often say, God is bringing the nations to us, how can we not respond? Our God who works all things together for good in a nation where law and order is not being upheld at our border is using it, I believe, to once again bring the nations to us. And our King is waiting for His church to wake up and respond to act as He desires towards the alien stranger and immigrant in our land. I believe this is a biblical issue, not a political issue. An issue that our King wants us to respond to Remember, we are to base our unity on truth, not politics. And that's why Craig and Chris and I visited Oasis Refugee Ministry several weeks ago, and we got to observe a festival that North County Community Church was doing, uh, the ministries in South City. And we got a chance to speak to the director there, and he he said that over a thousand Afghans are coming to the St. Louis area. And he says what the ministry does is, is it comes beside them and it helps them learn the language and helps them train for a job and helps them find a job and an apartment. And then they have this furniture store and clothing store where they help uh, outfit the apartment. And if they have clothes, they, they, they suit them up with that. And they have a food where they can help them with food. And it's like... And, and as your pastors, we want to get involved in that ministry in the future. We want to be part of what God says in His Word that we are to care for the poor and the immigrant and the stranger that comes to our land. The issue of immigration for the church, it's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. Let's move on to our third point. The power in our mission comes through our unity. This is where we move to the third and final section in Jesus' prayer where he prays for all believers. And what I want you to see in that is he's praying for you and me. He's praying for Emmanuel Fellowship Church. And that's kind of awesome to think about that as we're reading this that we're actually finding ourselves in his prayer. He's praying for us. So let's go back to John chapter 17 and let's read verses 20 through 24.
He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's speaking of the 11 disciples that he just prayed for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And we saw evidence of the answer of that prayer right there in Acts as the first church and 3,000 through Peter's message came to saving faith in Christ. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So first of all, in verse 24, I don't want you to miss something. Jesus is speaking of a glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world, and it's revealing to us that he is the eternal God who's come in human flesh to redeem humanity from his sin. And then in this text, Jesus reveals two things. He says our unity is to be modeled after the triune God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who in eternity past and throughout all time lives in perfect community, perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect love and fellowship, and the church is to model themselves after the unity that they have. And then he says our unity is to come through our connection with God and relationship, something that can only be achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. But did you notice Jesus says there is something powerful that happens when the church is unified. Let's read verses 21 again. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, he says, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says that the church's most powerful witness to the world that he is real is not through miraculous signs and wonders, but it's through the supernatural life of God's people united in beautiful, diverse community. Once again, seen in the first church, a church that was filled with people from many nations and tribes and tongues. And I want you to realize that how Christ's church began is also how it will end. This is what his bride will look like in heaven. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. What a beautiful picture of God's original intentions for his church that we see in Acts coming full circle in Revelation. And I believe it's what he desires for the church to look like today. It's one of the reasons why your pastors want to pursue a deeper relationship and partnership with the Iglesia Emanuel Church the Hispanic church that meets with us here. And we've been talking with Pastor Alvin about that very thing. It's why we want to deepen the relationship that we have with New City Fellowship Church, an inner city church that we already have a partnership, and we want that partnership to go deeper. Let's go ahead and read a little further in Acts so that we can see what the new church looked like. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The unity and the power and the unity that this church was experiencing was based on the truth of God's word as was taught through the apostles. And they lived out those truths in intimate fellowship and unified community. And here are the results in verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They experienced the power that God releases through His people as they choose to live in unity. God will release power in Emmanuel Fellowship Church as we choose to live in unity. Let's move to our fourth and final point. The preservation of our unity is found in loving one another. So just prior to Jesus' prayer here in John 17, during the Last Supper discourse, Jesus says this in John 13, 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, if we're to love like Jesus, how has Jesus loved us? Intentionally, sacrificially, unconditionally. His love is a love that's full of mercy and grace and forgiveness. A love willing to lay everything on the line for the objects of his love. Jesus' love was a radical servanthood, a love that laid his life down for his friends. It's a love that he calls his church to exhibit with one another. When a church's unity is based in their love for one another, it has a powerful impact once again in the world because in verse 35 he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Are you starting to get it? Are you starting to see what Jesus is saying about unity and the power that unity has, the people in the world and how it becomes transformative? Because what the people see in the church is not experienced in the world, so it becomes attractive and drawing. It's as if people would say of us, did you see the way those people from Emmanuel Fellowship Church love and care for and support and encourage one another? There must be something to being a follower of Jesus. I want to find out more about that. Almost 60 times the New Testament gives references to the one another commands that are be characteristics of the depth of love that is to divine our fellowship. Some of them are love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, build up one another, carry one another's burdens, encourage one another, be devoted to one another, confess your sin to one another, Instruct one another, forgive one another, honor one another above yourselves. The one another commands reflect a depth of relational interaction and sharing of life that can only be accomplished as we live in close proximity with one another. You can't live these out from a distance. The one another is our reflection of what Christian body life is to be, of what the church is to be. It's the kind of love that isn't experienced in the world and why it is so attractive. The Christian life cannot be lived apart from community. You may be able to survive as a Christian that way, but you're never going to thrive apart from living in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, I know that COVID has thrown a wrench into all this. 
I know that some of you back home are struggling with health issues and your doctors have told you to stay away because of those health issues. I know that many of you long to come back. You long for relational connection with your church friends and families and, and we pray for you and we miss you and we want to serve you in whatever ways we can and we long for the day where we see you walk back through that door again. One of the pastors will contact you soon to find out how we can better serve you during this time. We want you to be reassured that we haven't forgotten you. But some of you watching online this morning know that you've settled for comfortable and convenient lounge chair, isolated church online, and you've convinced yourself that that's church, but it isn't. We've been talking about how unity is a characteristic of Christ's church, and Unity comes through community. And if you look at that word, the very end of that is unity. The word unity is found in the actual word community. See if you can find the word unity in words like isolation, independent, lone ranger, or live streaming. You can't find that word there. Christianity cannot be lived out in isolation apart from your church family. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another unto love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Listen, we, we miss you guys. You have a family here who misses you, who needs you, and, and you need us. It, it's time to come back. We want to share in your hopes and your dreams and your struggles and your fears, your needs as... We need to share those with you. And I'm really looking forward to meeting some of you who I've never had a chance to meet. So all I can say is get your butts back here. Can I say that? Okay, get your derriere back here. Maybe we should close this in prayer as I confess that last comment to the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. As we uh, spend this time and as Chris plays, I want you to just close your eyes and I want you to reflect on how God may be speaking to you about what we base our unity upon, about how it's based in truth of his word, how maybe we've been given over to politics and what the pundits have been saying on this news organization or on this podcast. And we've gotten totally away for, as Christians from the very thing of living by the actual Word of God. So as you spend some time with the Lord, maybe, maybe it's repentance that needs to occur, occur in your heart that you've been trusting in men and you've been trusting in institutions and you've been trusting in politics rather than trusting in the Word of God and His life being lived through the church. Maybe you're somebody online who has given in to that comfort and convenience that lounge chair Christianity of watching online and God's calling you to come back because you realize that you can't thrive in your Christian life without living in community with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you've been somebody this morning who has been forsaking the Word of God and have, has not even been in it and, and God's calling you back, said, come meet with me through the Word. Times of prayer. I want you to get to know me and I want to know you better. So as Chris plays, just I want you to Spend this time with the Lord and 
and reflect on that and, and just talk things over with him right now.